Gonzaga, and I am the founder and artistic director of Opera Cecilia. And my name is Tanis Gonzaga. I am executive director, uh, also known as yours truly, T. And we are the hosts of the Savvy Soprano podcast through Opera Cecilia, which is a podcast that discusses kind of industry tea and our journey as entrepreneurs in a company that is revolving around media and opera and live performance of opera and bringing opera into the 21st century. Thank you very much for lending us your ears. On this episode, we're talking a little bit about entrepreneurship. It's a big word. It's a interesting concept, and I, I wanna I wanna hear your two cents on this because it's kind of a hard concept to wrap your head around, isn't it? It's a little bit challenging because I think the word entrepreneur can mean so many different things to so many different people. Um, to me, entrepreneurship, and to many people, I think in our generation, it means freedom and flexibility. If you're able to be successful as an entrepreneur, of course, it takes a lot of hard work to be successful in many contexts. But if you are able to be successful, I feel like our generation's ultimate flex is not having the most fancy house or the most fancy car. Like that may be all well and good, but it's it's having complete control over your life, you know? In the sense that you get to dictate your own schedule, you have are earning enough money from multiple different streams of income that if something unpredictable happens with one, you have others swooping in to help you. And you can live wherever you want, travel wherever you want, because your work can come with you. And I feel like that's kind of maybe the more, perhaps the more selfish reasons why Opera Cecilia was such an attractive route to take in this industry is because of the infinite potential that it has depending on how hard and consistently we work at it but i there were so many other um more i don't know meaningful or like meaningful in this on from a worldly perspective or meaningful from a i want to change the industry perspective there were so many reasons coming from that standpoint that opera cecilia came into existence too so why in the first place were you thinking you know what i'm one of those crazy weirdos that is gonna strike out on their own and i'm gonna make my own opera company well um I think it's kind of the reason why a lot of people become entrepreneurs. The motivation initially came from disenchantment. I think all of us opera singers or young opera singers are sort of told a trajectory that we're supposed to go and we're told that it's manageable and that it can work for everybody and that there isn't going to be as many bumps or cracks in the road along the way as there actually is or as many barriers to entry. And I got disenchanted with the way things were being handled in the industry um, by big companies that I used to idolize or admire when I was young. I got disenchanted with the way that people who had families were being treated in the industry, um, how underpaid and vulnerable emerging artists were becoming in the industry. And just overall, like, I know there's wonderful people in the industry and wonderful people working for big companies. But at the same time, I I was kind of sick of following their rules. And I kind of had, I was at a crossroads at that point. I could choose to be sad about it, but still complicit, you know? 
and still just kind of accept that that's the way things are and try to be successful within that industry, even though it sort of sucked for me and was not making me happy. Or I could choose to turn that disenchantment into inspiration and allow my more creative side to come forth and to create something completely new that is the stamp that I want to make on the opera industry to hopefully make it maybe a little bit of a better or more hospitable place or at least inspire other bigger entities to know that they can change things and that we aren't stuck where we are. Could could you talk a little bit more about feeling stuck where we are in the industry? Because I'm not entirely sure I follow that train of thought or if our listeners might understand what you're talking about. Yeah, for clarification... I think that there's a lot of talk in the industry, especially among older generations and in in voice instructors and stuff to emerging artists. Like I got a lot of this when I was really young. Oh, this is just the way things are. You know, you're going to get creepy conductors, creepy artistic directors, creepy veteran singers that kind of, I don't know, can pray in really... Um, unfortunate and violating ways on emerging artists. Um, you're going to get people trying to take advantage of you. You're going to get people who are insincere. There's a lot of, I. There was, there was just like so many stories of like infidelity among couples in the opera industry and um, families having a really hard time because of the nature of the career. And everybody was just kind of like complicit with it. And they were just like, this is how it is. It's always going to be application fees. Young artists having to fork out $8,000 a pop just to get role experience. Sopranos not getting the industry catered to them when we're the largest demographic of singers in the industry. Like I could go on and on. But I was always just told over and over whenever I brought one of these issues up that this is just how things are. And I truly do not believe that we're ever stuck anywhere in society. We made all of this up, you know? Singing is a very primitive art form that was used by our ancestors for emotional communication and storytelling. We turned it into what it is. And there's so many beautiful facets of the art that we've been able to create out of it. But the industry that we've created around it is something that we made up. And we can unmake it up or change it in any way we choose. We just have to get enough people who have the courage to say enough is enough. And young artists are very, very... Their, their courage and their outspokenness tends to be very suppressed early on. So I don't really blame them for not speaking out as much about this. Some are. Um, but I do kind of place blame on industry gatekeepers who know that the current state of the industry, while corrupted, benefits them. So they don't do anything about it. Tell me more about your perception of these people who are benefiting from the system. What sort of benefits do you think they garner out of the system and how what how do you think they feel about it in your opinion i ran across this research article at one point um shout out to i think it was the the journal the journal forum or the page or the website that i found it on was called middle class artist so shout out to them if they come across this podcast thank you for your work But this person basically reported on and 
took inventory of like profits that were coming in from young artist programs from pay to sings and statistics that impacted emerging artists and how emerging artists were being filtered through these programs or getting accepted into these programs and first of all one of the interesting things that the article brought up is that getting into a big young artist program like a really prestigious one not necessarily a pay to sing but one of the ones that technically is paid but very underpaid for the amount of labor that they're making the artists do typically there's some rare exceptions but to get into one of the big well-known ones it's harder than getting into harvard you know, and and the schools are kind of like schools and conservatories are siphoning out all of these artists and saying that, oh, this is the this is the one way to get successful, you know. And so where do all the rest of the artists land if they're not getting underpaid? They're having to pay. And so we've kind of created an industry, especially in the United States, but this is pervasive in other countries as well, where um, we uh, We've moved away from this model of the audience member being the customer in the opera industry. And we've moved in the direction of the emerging artist being the customer. The emerging artist is keeping the industry and all of these people's pockets lined by paying tuition for these programs that are masquerading kind of as nonprofits, in my opinion, because a lot of them get named nonprofit educational organizations. And some of these CEOs, according to this article and some other research I did, are making close to $500,000 a year. Do you think that kind of income is unwarranted? Um, I think it really depends on how much work the person is putting in. I don't necessarily think it's completely unwarranted in every circumstance. And to be honest, there's still more research to be done. But I do think that it's very interesting that that's the route all of these artistic administrators are taking. They're like, oh, opera is like low key, maybe dying in its audience demographic or the generations that still enjoy opera actively are getting older and older. And those are the patrons we need to cater to, which leads to a lot of more progressive concepts in opera being discounted automatically or new works being discounted. But at the same time, I just kind of feel like I kind of feel like they they were like taking an opportunity to capitalize on emerging artists because we were so hungry and we so badly want to be a part of this art form. I've met so many that are like that, including myself at various parts of my career, because I did a few pay to sings, um, especially during my undergrad years. And while I had some transformative experiences at some, I shouldn't have to fork out, you know, 40 plus thousand dollars in debt for two degrees and then have to turn around and drop another 10 grand plus on pay to sing programs. And then I finally get into a paid young artist program when I'm in my mid to late 20s, which is extra hard if you happen to be a soprano. And I might get paid a stipend or I might get kind of a leg up in AGMA because of that. But I have to pay my own housing in some situations. I have to pay my own travel expenses. I have to pay to live. So I get paid this like, I don't know, $500 stipend per month at some companies for missing three months of my regular day job work that was sustaining and paying my bills and missing three months and not living in my house for three months. So I either have to sublet it or sublet my apartment or let go of my lease, or I have to suck it up and pay double the living expenses. 
or be kind of homeless and live with family members. Be nomadic, be a couch server, live with family. Not everybody has that privilege. It's a privilege to have family that you can just kind of drop in on, you know? Not everybody has that. You're blessed if you do, but not everybody does. So we can't form an industry with the assumption that people have those kind of connections and can just use them. Some people come from very low income households. Some people are estranged from their families. They should still have an opportunity to be a part of this art form. What perceptions did you have coming into the process of being an, an entrepreneur? And did those perceptions change? Uh, yes and no on the changing part. I think my perception was that I could finally create something where I didn't have to follow other people's rules and I could maybe create this alternative path in the industry and inspire other people to do the same, where I could create a life that was harmonious with the other things in my life that I wanted. And I didn't have to just be like narrow mindedly obsessive and compulsive about my career in order to have some success in it and still do what I love to do. And I'm coming to find that the things that might have been incorrect perceptions in the beginning was that some of the magnitude of administrative work that I would have to do for a business was definitely underestimated. And now I understand the ins and outs of that more and I, I'm more mentally prepared for it. But in the beginning, I was like, I felt like I was unqualified to do all anything but sing, <laughs> basically. And so, you know, I, I created this company to make performance opportunities for myself, but it's turned into... A lot more than that you know yes i get to actively perform with the company and i i don't feel any shame in that because i've built it from the ground up with you but at the same time i it, it's become a lot more about giving other art, artists opportunities and inspiring other artists to do this too you know i would love my dream is that someday some person that was maybe a few years younger than us that performed for one of our shows or something that was just trying to break into the industry starts their own opera company and comes back and tells us that it was working with Opera Cecilia that inspired them to do that. That's the kind of influence that I want to have. It's purely inspiration and empowerment. And I feel like there's so much in both mainstream media and in the opera world that's based off of degrading or bringing down other people in order to become more powerful yourself. And I truly do not think that that is the only way that you can build an empire. I think you can build an empire through empowering other people and strengthening your ties to those people and strengthening the rest of your community. And that's the kind of empire that I want to build. I think it's the most sustainable. What would you have to say to critics who suspect you made a company just to cast yourself? <laughs> uh, it's not entirely a dishonest statement. I mean, it's not inaccurate. I did make a company so that I could have my own performance opportunities, like I said before. I'm not apologetic about that though anymore I think in the beginning I used to be really afraid like I really want to start this opera company and I do want to perform with my company and I love getting to perform in self-produced projects because I feel like I have so much more freedom and artistic license to make it into something I genuinely want to make it into and I don't have to feel like I have to put myself in this box of like industry standards and things like that I wanted my creativity to know no bounds 
So part of me made this company because I could produce performance projects for myself that I can be a part of that would encapsulate the full scope of what I want to offer as an artist and not just one little piece of it that I think is industry palatable. And I used to be afraid that if I didn't already have like a Met credit to my resume or I hadn't won some major competition and I made this company and this was most of the performing work that I did was with my own company, that people wouldn't consider me a legitimate opera singer because I had not been picked by a gatekeeper. But then I just realized that the more that I had that mentality about myself, the more I was self-shaming and the more I was holding my company and my dreams back. And I was holding myself back from this life just because of what other people perceived of me. And other people's perceptions don't deserve that much merit. What other people think about me, as my dad has said multiple times, is none of my business. And I, I'm definitely not perfect at this. I'm far from it. I've lived most of my life very dependent on and, and dictated by what other people thought of me. But I'm really working on entering a new chapter of my life with my entrepreneurship in which I don't really care about that anymore because that's not my primary goal is to appease them. My primary goal is to make a positive difference in the industry. And that comes with me being able to share my art as an artist and as a singer because my love for singing and my ability to sing is what inspired this company in the first place. That being said, that's not the only reason I started it. And someday in the future, I hope Opera Cecilia is big enough so that there are certain projects during our main stage season that I can take a back seat in and we can hire other performers and I can afford to pay those additional fees. Or I could double cast myself in a production um, and give the other soprano an equal amount of performances to me. Like all of these options are definitely things going through my head. Right now, I feel like I'm wearing every single hat I possibly can because our company's not making enough money for me not to. <laughs> but someday, you know, as it grows, the opportunities for others will grow. So at this point in time, we're not quite two years into this. Yeah, we're about a year and a half. Officially. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the evolution of this. Because I remember back when we were dating, when you had one student that you had to drive <laughs> to their house. You used to do house calls, basically, with teaching. And I just remember this one teenage student that you would go to their house and do voice lessons yeah um among other few students but do you consider that a part of the evolution of opera cecilia because i do remember um i think initially you were calling it the cecilia project so t tell me more about this little seed the little seed that was this opera company before it even became the thought of an opera company yeah well as a person of faith a progressive person of faith i have always had kind of a devotion to saint cecilia patron saint of music i always knew that was what i wanted to name my company after but I, it started kind of in the final years of undergrad when you and i were really getting close as friends before we even started dating where i conceived of this cecilia project thing and originally it was an opera company that eventually was sustained and funded by 
a facility that also doubled as a children's music school because I was starting to gain a passion for music education. It started with that one teenage student whose house I went to to teach her lessons, but it branched off from there to eventually getting more students um, shortly after I graduated um, and getting more experience as a sacred music director and then landing a full-time job as a teacher and doing that for about a year before going to grad school with the teaching assistantship. And all of the sudden teaching, all these teaching opportunities were landing in my lap. And so it just kind of made sense for the company to be structured that way. And I stuck with that model and that desire for a while. And I shared a lot of that with you and you were like, that's a cool idea. And I do think it's a cool idea, but eventually it turned into something different because to be quite honest, I, I have worked and I'm still doing some contract work with these little boutique music schools that pop up. And some of them are more fair to their teachers than others, but I've gotten a really good inside look through working those jobs of the logistics that go into running a school like that. And I just kind of decided that that wasn't necessarily the route I wanted to take, even though it's not a bad route. And it's important for music education to exist and children's music education, especially Um, shout out to all early music educators. I think I've done a lot of that in my career as well. And I think it is extremely important work. And that's one of the most important generations to reach with music because you raise patrons of the arts in addition to future artists. And that's so important. But um, Opera Cecilia became something different from the pandemic. So like you remember the process of doing the telephone, right? What did you think of like that process? Because that was really before Orfeo even existed, which was the first production of our inaugural season before Opera Cecilia even existed. There was the telephone. Yeah. So um, for those of you that are not familiar, uh, the telephone is a radio opera initially written by Giancarlo Menotti. I think Mm -hmm. it is. Yeah, you're correct. And so it's a. It's a radio opera. You're the one with a grad degree that actually, like, <laughs> uh, so I yeah, know the second hand. you inadvertently star, became the star of so that opera could, as well. Could you, could you give us a brief summary of what a radio opera is? So um, radio operas were kind of a more recent development. I think Minotti developed them... It was, like, post-20th century. It was, like, 1950s around that time, I think. Where these started, these guys, these radio operas started to come into effect, and Minotti really, I think, coined them. I'm sure there were other composers doing it too, but radio operas were just made in an era where radio was a primary, a more primary form of entertainment. I think podcasts are kind of that version now, or one of them, even though people still listen to the radio too. But radio was really a primary form, and so it was a way of making opera, I think, more accessible. I didn't research a ton of the history behind radio operas in general, to be honest, but the telephone was among the most popular. I think there was actually a virgin, a version that was staged at the Met as well. I think I did read that somewhere that they actually staged a version at the Met and it is performed fully staged now and not just as a radio opera, but that's originally like its conception. I think if I'm 
not, I might be mistaken in this, so people can correct me or come at me if I'm wrong, I guess. But I think Old Maid and the Thief, which is another really popular one, was also originally conceived as a radio opera. So he conceived a few of them. So with that little background of a radio opera, this particular opera, it's about 30 minutes long. Yeah, it's so meant to be all audio or a, it can be experienced just auditorily. It's a very bite-sized piece of opera if you compare it to mm -hmm. stuff like Wagner's Ring Cycle. Yeah, it's meant to be more palatable to a mainstream audience, so it's shorter. Right, and so... Smaller story. You were speaking about how this kind of started because of the pandemic. So we had moved to Minnesota mm -hmm. so you could, um, you could get your master's degree at the Duluth campus of the University of Minnesota. Yep. And it was like seven or eight months into your grad degree. Yeah. When the pandemic hit. It was even less than that. I only really got my first semester of grad school in a normal setting, if that makes sense, where all of our performances were live, right. where I was doing live performances in the community because we went into lockdown as of February, March. I think it was more March of 2020. So I got like a good two months into spring term of my first year before we shut down. And then the semester. whole rest of my degree was online mostly right. yeah and i don't remember what projects your school had in mind for that particular semester um but all of a sudden they had to pivot yeah and tell me a little bit more about how that changed the roles that you had lined up <laughs> Gosh, the pandemic messed up so much for me because I was Miss Pinkerton in Old Maid and the Thief, and I was covering Golden Trill in the Empresario the spring semester of my first year of grad studies there. We were supposed to perform that live on stage with full orchestra. The UMD orchestra was behind us. It was going to be like a big thing. I was very excited. And then right when we were about to head into dress rehearsals, we shut down. And then I just never heard anything from that production, those productions again. We were performing Wow, so you never actually did them. No. We got to dress rehearsals, though. So I fully learned and studied both of those roles. I had them down. I had them memorized. We were just about to start our rehearsals with the orchestra without piano reduction. We even knew our blocking and our costumes and stuff because I helped design costumes as an assistant. But, right. um, but then everything got shut down and then I never heard anything from those two shows again. We were performing Impresario and Old Maid as a double bill that spring. So how did that particular program finish out that semester? Because part of it was they offered you to do the telephone and because at the time I was taking voice lessons with one of the faculties just at, on a private basis. Yeah. Um, and they knew my voice. Mm -hmm. uh, were you the one who volunteered me <laughs> to be a part of that? I, I can't well, remember. Well, Old Maiden Impresario were supposed to happen spring semester of my first year. Those just stopped and then they had us do like a character study thing for the rest of Opera Studio. And then they just ended it. It was very abrupt and... 
nobody knew what they were doing. So none of the other <laughs> students actually got to perform anything l- no, like no, that no, at no, all. No, 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 none of us did. And then, um, and then we went into summer, and summer was summer. And then we returned, and I was originally told that if we were going to, we we weren't sure whether we were going to be able to reopen in the fall or not. But she, they were trying to make it the performance for fall in the opera studio relatively low maintenance, but they still wanted to give grad students opportunities for roles, especially, and things like that, which I appreciated their attempts. But they told me that I was going to be Lucy in the telephone and that we were going to do the telephone as kind of a double bill performance with a big opera scene showcase and that I would also perform in some of the scenes. And that's what they originally told me. Um during August, right before we were supposed to start back in September. And then when we got back in September and they found out that UMD had told everybody across the board that there couldn't be any live performances and that we were still all online and shut down, um, they told me that they didn't know. We, We were very short on male grad students at the time everybody at least in the opera department everyone was female we were very female heavy when they were talking about doing the telephone with you did they have someone in mind that they were going to cast out of that well it was originally going to be an adjunct faculty member because they were they didn't have any grad school guys it was very weird but they were originally going to have an adjunct member of the faculty actually we're not going to name names in this podcast but the same individual that was teaching you at the time was going to perform alongside me in the telephone and then they decided because they had to make budget cuts due to the pandemic that they couldn't pay him to do that i guess not to mention the fact that you couldn't really meet in person. And we couldn't meet in person. We couldn't rehearse in person. The um, director of the opera studio couldn't meet with us in person. And my voice instructor at the time, because of other medical issues, was very, very high risk for getting complications from COVID. So there were just like multiple levels of we couldn't meet. We couldn't be around each other at the time. Right. And, and and this was before vaccine had actually become available long before that. And well. I remember at some point in time, I got roped into it because. Yeah. Well, like, what ended up happening was they were familiar with your voice because you had been studying with who was originally going to perform with me. They told me that they just wanted to do the aria as like a virtual thing and they weren't going to have me do the whole show. But I turned around and I emailed them and I said, hey, I really want this role on my resume. I want some role. that I actually performed and did something with during my grad studies on my resume. And so I asked if they would be okay with you and I making it into like a movie opera out of our home. And it was just kind of an industrious last minute thing. Did I talk to you about this before I volunteered you? Potentially. I think I I can't remember the order. Oh my gosh, I really hope I did. I'm pretty sure I communicated it to you and asked you if you'd be okay with it. And you said yes. And then... I asked and they said they were going to let me do it because of circumstances. And you and I were obviously living together and we were spouses. And so we could be around each other unmasked. And so it was also the only part of the virtual opera performance that semester that was not performed masked because the rest of us met to film opera scenes with social distance blocking masked. So everything else was much more reserved. 
um, in the filming. Not that they weren't beautiful in their own way. It was an opera scenes compilation. Right. But, but the telephone got to be... We had the privilege. Yeah. Because we were spouses, lived in the same yeah. household. And a lot of people who watched it, because um, it was released to like the whole College of Liberal Arts, basically, um, they said that they really loved the fact that it kind of felt like an escape for them. Because there wasn't a bunch of masks around and there wasn't mention of the pandemic. Or I want to talk like a that. little bit about the process from my point of view. Yeah. So Minotti, Minotti's The Telephone is an opera with a soprano named Lucy and a baritone named Ben. Mm -hmm. I am yeah. a tenor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a so, corner that was cut. <laughs> right off the bat... Uh, we were fighting an uphill battle, not just because of the pandemic, but because technically that was not my voice type. Yeah. Um, we were really improvising, folks. Yeah, we were really making things work. We were really working to make things work because of the circumstances, for sure. And luckily, I do think you talked to me about me being a part of this project. Yeah. Because it was so involved. And because it was a baritone role and you were a tenor. And I wanted to make sure you looked over the music to be sure that you felt comfortable singing it. And particularly, I think I would have said no if I didn't feel like we could make it work. Yeah. But I felt like we could make it work mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. One... Because we were spouses, we could actually rehearse the music together. Yeah. Two, I have a bachelor's degree in music and theater. I took lighting classes. I took set design classes, costume design classes. Mm -hmm. I had a very well-rounded opportunity to hone those skills. And I naturally was interested in directing. And I had that interest so yeah and we did have a director from the opera studio and i will give her credit for that but it was a very very collaborative experience and so she was able to give us the concept and really guide us through that and we agreed upon a concept behind it together but you and i you were like cinematographer and director in that sense because you yes. were like and that's finding, what i was trying to get to yeah, because this director shots. that we had they couldn't meet with us except over a screen. Exactly. And it's real hard. That's very. It's one thing to try and block something on a stage because it's a canvas. Yeah. But we actually did it out of our home, which had a very different layout than a stage. Mm -hmm. So that lended its own challenges and opportunities, um, such as different angles that we had to make. <laughs> I think that's so funny, too, because so many people told me that they were just expecting it to be. And, you know, we didn't like have to home video style. Right. Yeah. And we literally shot this cinematically. Yeah. Like, I, I was not going to settle for that. No, we we neither of us were. And so literally like the most unnerving part of the process that was so educational to me in such an unusual way was the fact that we would do like Lucy's Aria and I had to do it five different times so that you could 
reposition the cameras from five different angles. Because these cameras that we were using were our phones. <laughs> and we only had like two of them. And we so, were using our iPhones. Yeah, we could do two shots at a time, two angles. And then we had to reposition the phones and we had to do the whole thing again. And but we, we had, had to, to use lamps for yeah. our lighting. And we had to make sure that the staging that we had come up with with our director was the same without deviations or with as little deviations as possible from for continuity shot to shot purposes because from shot, yeah. we had such a limited amount of cameras and they had to be stationary because we didn't have any other people there that could hold the cameras. It was absolute insanity. Like the, <laughs> the more that I like look back on it, the more I'm like the fact that it turned out the way it did is kind of like amazing because we had so little resources and we were so isolated during the process and we had to me that was a huge learning experience and Mm -hmm. it it, to me it was so rewarding because not only did did i get to sing something when i felt like i was no longer that was no longer really going to be a part of my life but i got a chance to be so creative and it was difficult because Mm -hmm. I had never done something like that. Yeah. But I do think it turned out really well. Mm -hmm. It's definitely rough. Well, Um, yeah, it was our first time doing any of that. And I also, it was our first time using like really working with recording software too and like syncing our stuff together. And I was working through a bunch of stuff technically. So I just remember so many of my vocal demons coming out when I was recording her role. Because what we did is we recorded the entire thing in advance. We edited and synced um, all of the audio together. And then once we were done recording the entire opera, we lip synced to our own voices. Right. We had coachings. um, Yeah, we had coachings. I had voice lessons. With our director. You had voice lessons on the part. University of Minnesota, Duluth made sure that we had really good quality piano recordings. Yeah. And just that whole experience... First of all, I want to I want to encourage you to go over to the Opera Cecilia YouTube channel and <laughs> look it up because it's actually on there for free. Yeah. Technically, we're not making any money off of it because of licensing requirements. Yeah, we but can't. the story that we came up with was so precious and entertaining. I am really proud of the work that we've done. You will see weird lighting things. You will see weird and <laughs> continuities. Um. Like but, the blanket on the back of the couch. It's like him folded in a different shape every scene. Yeah, or the tripod that shows up. Yeah, um, we had a few of those. But <laughs> it, it's, I do think it stands on its own so well. And there were so many renditions of the telephone that happened because of the pandemic. Uh-huh. Be- because we, our program, your program, There was a lot of programs who did it. Was not the only one that did it. Yeah. It was easy. It was a two-person cast, you know? Yeah. And it was short. Mm -hmm. It was was very attainable, and it was a full role. Two full roles. Yeah. One each. Um, So I very much recommend you go over and watch our handiwork and just enjoy it. Yeah. I, I mean, yes, there's... There, there's issues, but it's really a joy to watch. 
Yeah. <laughs> it, I still really I is. still smile when I go back and watch it every once in a while. Um, just because I know all the hard work we put into and into it. And I do think that we were able to turn Lucy and Ben into two really well fleshed out three dimensional characters. And a lot of that was just us working with our director and working with each other and being like, we don't want to portray Ben with any toxic masculinity. Like occasionally we've seen him interpreted, you know, and we don't want to interpret Lucy as just this simple airhead who's only interested in what's yeah going on or in like pick a little talk a little or gossip yeah. you know she has those tendencies but we don't want that to be the only aspect of her character so we made ben a little bit more i don't know soft and understanding and his compassionate side comes out um and we made lucy a little bit a little tiny bit more quirky and charming in that sense and funny and the two of them jived really well together even though they were kind of getting lost in translation a little bit. I do think the rewatchability factor is very strong with this one. Yeah. Because we had the opportunity to direct the audience's attention wherever we wanted to, we were able to direct the attention to very different things. You know, a detail here, a detail there. So I do think you can rewatch it and enjoy it and catch more things yeah i also think that opera cecilia as a media company which was originally never something i expected the company to turn into i originally my original conception of having an opera company attached to a music school was doing everything live and not having any tech component and the the pandemic really opened my eyes to the possibilities of a tech component and nobody really did the filming in the same way that we were. We had our own style with it. We had our own method of storytelling. You had your own method of approaching cinematography, which you're so instinctually good at. <laughs> and I don't even know if that was something either of us expected would turn out as good as it was. But we were so proud of the telephone that that became the catalyst for the Opera Cecilia YouTube channel in many ways. It became the catalyst for Orfeo which would become this big, huge, existential, deep story about grief and fighting with oneself. And like, it was like, (laughs) the whole entire process of creating it was like the telephone on crack. Like, it was real hard, but... If you want to... Man, it was so rewarding. Know more about Orfeo, there are a couple featurettes that are on the YouTube channel that you can look through and see parts of our concept um and we do at at this point in time of recording the the feature length presentation of orfeo ed euridice is currently still for purchase so for five dollars um you can that you can send us through Mm -hmm. paypal or venmo i forget what it is it's on operacecilia.com you can find how to purchase a ticket to see Orfeo as a virtual project. And what I really love about cinematic opera and the way that we were approaching it is we're still challenging them to sing through these roles with full technique. We're still, we're recording. We're going through the process of that. Um, But we're filming it. We're studying it like opera singers and we're filming it like movie directors. We're not trying to create a conventionally staged opera 
on film when we do a cinematic project. We are creating a feature film with with an opera. And so we kind of aim to create every single show to be its own little universe and its own little world that you can dive into. And our first season, we really got that in with Orfeo. We did a little oratorio art film for Messiah by Candlelight, which is also available for free on the Opera Cecilia YouTube channel now. Um, Artists for Peace was a benefit concert for Ukraine during our first season that was all digital. And one of the amazing possibilities of digital content that was opened up to me during that experience was the fact that we could collaborate with people from different countries. And like all of a sudden my eyes were just getting open to all these ideas. And so now Opera Cecilia has developed into OCLLC, which is a media and opera company and our YouTube channel and the tech used for our podcast series and all the other technological components to our company are just as vital of an aspect of our company as our live performances are. And we still are dedicated to live performance. We still want that to be perpetuated in the opera world. That's the original way this art form was supposed to be done. But why not make opera flexible and malleable and combine it with other mediums and create something even more fascinating. Opera does need to evolve. I I do ardently believe that if if there's no flexibility in how we view and enjoy opera, yeah. It might as well belong in a museum. Yeah. And there's no reason why historical opera companies that only perform things in a historically informed way can't exist. exist. They totally can. And they can consi- cons- exist. I can't speak today. They can exist in harmony with people who are pushing the envelope of what opera can do, pushing the boundaries, making the scope of operatic performance bigger and more accessible to mainstream audiences that are used to consuming different kinds of entertainment. And that can help the industry thrive in the same way that historically informed opera companies can. We don't have to be opera purists. We can both exist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so for you and I, it's about breaking conventions, breaking rules, giving emerging artists opportunities. And that's kind of what became the mission behind the company. We're doing a cinematic version of Ruzalka, an abridged version of Ruzalka this year that I'm so excited about. We have the most amazing cast. And, um, and I'm not just, I'm not talking about me and you just (laughs) only, we, we brought in some amazing performers from our virtual blind auditions and a member and a longtime collaborator with us, a member of our artistic team to be a part of this project. And it's just going to be fantastic. So please check that out coming in the summer of 2023. And our other virtual content, we're doing a continuation of the audio opera scenes turned fairy tale. We made an original fairy tale that um, (laughs) incorporated opera scenes sung in English translation called Through the Looking Glass that was released as an audio play with um, visual images to the YouTube channel. We're also going to probably release that as a podcast at some point, but we're creating a YouTube audio play podcast series called this year called Through the Looking Glass Myths and Legends that continues the lore and the fairy tale nature of Through the Looking Gla- the Through the Looking Glass universe, but it incorporates smaller short form stories in periodic episodes. 
And we have Crossover Cabaret, which is another virtual project with musical theater. Like the the scope of what opera can do and can be and what opera singers can do in their careers and how they can make money massively, like it's only as small as we make it or it's only as big as we make it. And at Opera Cecilia, even if we're a small company right now, I just, I want so badly to make that scope so huge. Yeah, exactly. So if any of you listeners out there are really excited about seeing these projects and watching how our company evolves, we encourage you to support us in any way that you can. Go over to the YouTube channel, subscribe, leave a comment, like videos. Um, Buy merch. <laughs> go go to operacecilia.com. We have... A, a merch store on there you you can buy you can buy items with our logos on it and all of that goes directly into funding this dream and supporting young artists i am 100 percent wanting to also emphasize the point that this support that you're giving us goes into emerging artists pockets that's the goal. The vast majority of every single budget that we have for every single project goes to its artists. And that's not even really us right now. <laughs> that's that's the artists that we hire out right now. And, and hopefully us a little bit more in the future because we want to be able to sustain ourselves with this business so we can devote our whole lives to it. But that being said, it goes right into the pockets of emerging artists. It goes into the pockets of local artists. It goes into the pockets of the artists that we hire to be a part of these projects. And the more support that we receive as a company, the higher that fee becomes because we want the vast majority of our budgets until the day we die with this company until some day, well, hopefully maybe this company will live well beyond us. But for the, till the end of time, we want the vast majority of every single budget for every show to go into the pockets of our artists. I don't care if we have to be more bare bones with other things like sets, costumes, stuff like that. The art will speak for itself, especially if our artists are happy <laughs> and paid as well as we they possibly can be. And I'm I, I don't feel like I can, I'm paying artists as much as I want to right now, even though we're paying them as much as we are capable of. But I know that that number can get bigger with continued support and as this company continues to grow. And that's something that makes me so excited, you know? So you're contributing to a good cause, I guess. Thank you very much for lending your ears to us during this hour podcast. And please continue to support Opera Cecilia. Watch out for more podcasts coming in the future. More episodes of The Savvy Soprano. And until next time, keep singing. We'll see you next time or listen to you next we'll catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>